Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm Mark Dunley. Today on Hudson Mohawk Magazine, uh, we begin with uh, Ellie Irons interviewing the Soil Factory, a space for exploring interactions between social arts and scientific networks in Ithaca, New York. Then for our peace segment, we hear an update on local organizing for a ceasefire in Gaza. Later on, we have part two of Willie Terry's discussion about Malcolm X. After that, Jonathan Siegel of Kitchen Sanctuary talks about his hope to find community around sources. And we end up with uh, people's science features about the work of Dr. Sarah Gaither, who talks about inequality in the field of science. But first, headlines. New York overpaid $50 million in Medicaid drug claims because of poor oversight from the New York Department of Health, according to a new audit from the state comptroller Thomas P. DiNapoli's office. After rejecting new congressional district maps from the Independent Redistricting Commission, state lawmakers will adopt new maps that have only slight modifications, with a few changes on Long Island and in the Hudson Valley. The Gazette reports that the nomination of former Schenectady Deputy Corporations Counsel Christopher Marney in the to the city's ethics board failed for the second time during Monday night's city council meeting. But city council president Marion Porterfield says she plans to submit Marney's name for the board for the third time when all of the council members are present to obtain the four votes needed. Some have raised concerns about the appointment due to Marney's recent employment with the city. Saratoga Springs City Finance Commissioner member Mandita Sanghavi has been endorsed by both the Schenectady County and Saratoga County Democratic Committees in her bid to unseat Senator Jim Tedesco for the 44th Senate District. While Macy's has announced that it is closing 150 stores nationwide, its two area stores at Colony Center and Crossgates are expected to remain open. The Fryhofer's Run for Women is being renamed the Delightful Run for Women. The annual 5K race for women, happening for the 45th time this year on June 1st, is changing its title sponsor to Sarah Lee Delightful Bread in an effort to give the race more national exposure. And that's that's it for headlines. The Soil Factory is a space for exploring interactions between social, arts, and scientific networks in Ithaca, New York. Members of Soil Factory traveled to the sanctuary in Troy in February of this year, and Ellie Irons spoke with the team behind the Soil Factory and this interview about the Marshy Garden. Ellie here, Nature Lab's community science educator, back once more with another interview with folks associated with the Soil Factory, an art science initiative in Ithaca, New York. Today, I'm talking to Ash Verlito and Brandon Hoke, the creative forces behind Marshy Garden, a land restoration project taking place at the Soil Factory. Welcome, Ash and Brandon. Um, I'd love to have you both introduce yourselves for our listeners. 
Hi, my name is Ash, and I'm an artist and interested in the natural world. My work pulls from the natural world, and I wanted to figure out a way to support the things I care about, pollinators and birds especially, with a direct engagement project. And was very excited to come across the soil factory and sort of immediately recognized it as a possible site to engage in this work. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm Brandon Hoke. Uh, I'm a native gardener and sustainable landscape designer with a background both in design as well as like ecological restoration. Um, so I was super stoked to uh, get in touch with Ash um, after she told me about the, the opportunities around the soil factory and work on kind of redefining the space as something that could support biodiversity and habitat. Amazing. Well, I'm really happy to have you both here to talk to us. One of the things that attracted me to interview folks from the Soil Factory is, like at the Sanctuary, it seems like the Soil Factory has a pretty broad approach to creative and interdisciplinary work. And I've kind of learned a bit more from each person I've interviewed. So I wondered if you could just define or describe how you understand the Soil Factory from each of your perspectives. I think the Soil Factory is a really cool um, space and how it is uh, collaborative and interdisciplinary. Um, I know those terms can be really broad and uh, like over applied, but it truly so with the different amount of projects that are going on and that it at its core is a relationship between scientists and artists um, makes it a really great space to interact with different folks um, coming from like my own background, uh, studying ecological restoration, but also having a background in graphic design and architecture. Um, it makes for a really interesting space where you're interacting with these artists in residency that are coming in um, who are doing these creative projects that are employing elements of science. So whether that's interactions with plants or different chemical materials or I don't know, structural elements. Uh, it makes for a really cool combination of stuff. Uh, so, And Ash? Um, yeah, just to follow up, I, uh, the, you know, the word is sort of incubation and cross-pollination always comes up. And I really have just been so kind of impressed and um, inspired by the, the energy that comes out of the sort of the main core soil factory people, particularly Johannes, just kind of always supportive of our ideas. And when we've come to them with kind of like what we've been thinking about or planning, there's just been this this interest and kind of, you know, how we can support each other in, in the goals, some of them common goals and others, you know, just kind of fold into the larger mission. Cool. Yeah, I've definitely gotten that feeling from the people I've talked to. So I thought at this point, we could move on to talking about the marshy garden. On the Soil Factory website, I saw it described as a living, restorative and scalable art form, which I love and relates to my own creative practice. Um, can you tell us more? Yeah, what I, what I think is really cool about Marshy Garden in that specific sentence as being like a living, restorative and scalable art form is that it's been a dynamic project. The project is now going into its third growing season, um, which is very exciting because native plants, that's kind of like the time that they become most self-sufficient in their early years and really start to kind of take their own forms and their own like kind of seed spreading. It's just ever changing. We, we offer a lot of guidance in helping add plants or kind of sculpting the soil or the land to foster new microhabitats. Uh, so whether that's like digging a pit to allow more water to fill to support more marshy plants or creating berms uh, or rockier places so that drier plants uh, can thrive there. We really kind of let the land guide itself um, and just assist in that process of enhancing what's already there or what can thrive there. 
So yeah, I like it as something as like its own living entity, uh, that it, it really is kind of like a macroorganism in a sense of like how the different insects and the bees and the mammals are all interacting with the native plants that are, um, that are growing there and living there. Beautiful. You want to add anything, Ash? Sure. I mean, I think one of the projects that maybe makes ours, ours, ours a little different or maybe our philosophy a little different is that <clears throat> we weren't trying to achieve a sort of blank slate when we started. We kind of wanted to figure out what we could do to sort of encourage habitat to increase its value for animals, wildlife, insects, as well as, you know, human animals, <laughs> I like to say. But what we could do without like a large scale removal, just kind of moving things aside and adding uh, plants and uh, different species that we thought would do well in the, si in the site and learn from those introductions. Cool. And am I remembering right from what I read that it was originally a lawn or what was the and the, it's right on site where the soil factory is, which is a warehouse, right? Is it are they contiguous or? That's right. The warehouse um, located in downtown Ithaca has this large um, lawn, uh, you know, kind of mono, monoculture turf lawn connected to it. And the marshy garden is in the center of that. And we sort of zeroed in on a wetter spot in the lawn that just seemed like uh, we kind of gravitated to that spot as like a place that could maybe be easily turned over into something more diverse and then kind of moved in concentric sort of uh, planting circles out from there and started to really you know, over the past two years, kind of understand the site better um, the more the longer we work at it you know, and kind of hone in on the specifics of the site. Another thing about it is that, you know, it's sort of like instructional in the sense of like no garden too small to have a certain amount of impact. And we and when we meet people or talk to people, we like to, you know, kind of say that, you know, it doesn't have to be this large scale project to kind of have meaning and value. Yeah, I was just going to add, um, I mean, and that's kind of goes to the restorative element of like what we're working on is that it being wet before, as Ash mentioned, when we would walk out to the, the lawn when it was still a lawn um, and seeing like these kind of massive puddles in spring, uh, it just felt like the land was like begging to like uh, just be returned back to like the state of like its originality before there was this kind of yeah, monoculture of grass planted over it um, and and that it could support other wildlife that was much more biodiverse. Um, and all of that area in uh, Ithaca is really part of a larger floodplain. So it just felt like this very natural return to a state where it feels almost like happier and uh, more self-sufficient in what it's um, creating. That's beautiful. So you read a message from the land and, and acted upon it. I love that. We have just a couple minutes left, believe it or not. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the future of the marshy garden and kind of anything that's going on this upcoming growing season, anything you'd like folks to know? We have we have so many ideas. <laughs> uh, it just feels it feels kind of infinite. We are expanding, which is very exciting. Um, the area uh, kind of adjacent to where we've been working uh, is uh, recently kind of been um, in the works of getting uh, turned over more. So we have some really beautiful native shrubs back there that we've been uncovering um, from out of some Phragmites, which is a, a non-native reed species that kinds to tends to take over wetland areas uh, very quickly. Um, so we're putting a lot of effort in there. Um, I'll let Ash talk to some of the new plants that we will potentially be growing and planting. But um, overall, just uh, actually focusing a lot on just like tending to what already we've planted um, for this year and just getting more uh, folks involved in the, the learning process on what we're doing. Great. That's right. We really want to, um, this year, going into the third season, like Brandon said, uh, really support uh, the work that we've done so far. 
Um, so we're not traying up as many species this year, but instead in this uh, expansion, which we're hoping to do, is have a targeted growing area for more production of, of seeds of specific plants that are um, endangered in our area. We're looking at a few different kinds of gentians, um, fringe gentian and bottle gentian, and hoping to uh, kind of have a targeted um, planting of those so we can um, you know, kind of charge up the, seed, the local seed banks here with those seeds. Amazing. And are there ways for local folks to get involved or even someone from out this way? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's a scrappy project. This is just sort of something that we do, you know, in the cracks between our in our lives. But we love having people come and help. And this year we're it's a goal of ours to try to share the different um, aspects of the process um, with people. And so we're hoping to post in the Soil Factory newsletter some um, organized um, events around uh, 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 the different aspects of what makes this garden happen and invite anyone who wants to to come and check it out. Yeah, and uh, people can find us on Instagram at Marshy Garden uh, Buzz um, <laughs> with lots of Z's. Um, so yeah, feel free. To, uh, yeah, if people want to message us and reach out, we're we're always happy to give um, tours of the the site to people. We really uh, love the public uh, education component a lot. Perfect. Well, we're looking forward to seeing how your garden grows. Thanks so much for um, joining me for an interview. Thank, Thank you. you. So I've been uh, working behind my house on a hill trying to create a wild flower garden. Um, and they say the third year is when it finally seems to come in. So hopefully that's true. Um, we'll see. Uh, but this was uh, Ellie Iron speaking about uh, with the folks out in the soil factory in uh, Ithaca. And if you want to learn more, you can go check out the solo, I'm sorry, the soil factory and for our peace segment, Karen Carmelli of Jewish Voices for Peace provides an update on efforts in the Capital District to achieve a ceasefire in Gaza and create a permanent and just peace in the Middle East. For our peace bucket, we're talking with uh, Karen Carmelli, who is Jewish Voice for Peace. Uh, obviously, a lot of events are taking place not only here in the Capital District, but throughout the country and worldwide, uh, continuing to try to um, stop the very bad situation uh, in, in Gaza. So we asked Karen to give us sort of an update on what are some of the key things that are taking place here in the uh, Capital District at the moment. Yes, thanks, Mark, so much for having me. Um, and, you know, as we speak today, we're over 140 days into a genocide, a U.S. and Israeli-led genocide against the Palestinian population in Gaza. Um, we're seeing the death toll surge above 30,000 people, and of those, more than 14,000 are children. Um, I read a statistic the other day that approximately 17,000 children are now orphaned. Um, we know that about 10 children a day are having one or more limbs amputated, and many of these are taking place without anesthesia because anesthesia and um, med medications have been very hard to get into Gaza. Um, and of course, food, we're seeing now uh, starvation, famine, particularly in North Gaza. It's very, uh, it's very disturbing and very bleak. You know, all, all the polls show widespread support, even among the Jewish community in the United States for, for ceasefire. Um, many countries have passed, um, you know, resolutions uh, calling for a halt. 
how do we actually get the United States and Israel to, to stop this situation? I wish I knew the answer to that question, Mark. Um, we saw a UN Security Council vote yet again recently, and the US uh, rejected it, vetoed the resolution, and we saw an abstention from the UK. It, it, the U.S. really stands alone on the world stage in supporting this horrific genocide. Um, we see consensus across the globe from other countries. We just learned that Ireland has passed um, sanctions against Israel and other countries are being more critical than they've ever been before. But the U.S. is the main obstacle to stopping this horrendous bloodshed at the moment. Um, and so what we're trying to do is just put pressure on any and all pressure points. So whether that's political and contacting our officials, disrupting them whenever we can, making sure to raise this issue in every platform with our elected officials. Um, JVP just had a statewide letter writing campaign to Senator Schumer and Gilla Senator Schumer and Gillibrand, where um, all letters were dropped in the mail on Monday, the 26th, uh, listing lots of names and including photos of people who have been killed in Gaza. So we're hoping that those land on their desks and they have something in front of them that they cannot ignore, like they've been ignoring our phone calls for the past five months. Um, but then another avenue is to really amp up the BDS campaign, which is the Boycott, Divestments and Sanctions campaign that uh, Palestinian civil society called for in, back in 2005. This is like going on 20 years ago, Palestinians have been urging the international community to boycott Israeli products, to not work with Israeli um, institutions that support the occupation, like universities. Um, it's also a cultural boycott, so not engaging with artists who are supportive of the occupation. And um, so, you know, we we we're we're going all out on all venue all avenues that are available to us because this needs to stop it needed to stop a long time ago but it absolutely every second counts when more and more lives are being destroyed by the minute now we're, we're taping this on on monday afternoon and just as we came on uh i i noticed i believe about 50 people jewish voice for peace were arrested for um protest in uh, President Biden, I guess, was in New York City at the Rockefeller Center beyond one of the late night uh, talk shows. And, you know, and there's certainly been a lot of, you know, spin, oh, that, you know, a lot of the administration doesn't support what Israel is doing. Um, is there any sense that, that, that Biden or the Democratic Party, who seem to be throwing away possibly the reelection effort against Trump, are going to come to their senses on this issue. I sure hope so, Mark. Um, I don't know what the Democrats are thinking at this point. Um, it's very, very scary. You know, uh, tomorrow is Michigan's primary, and there is a large campaign to have folks vote uncommitted in that primary because the the large Arab and Muslim population in Michigan simply cannot bring itself to vote for someone who is taking their taxpayer dollars as Americans to kill their own family members in Gaza. It's unbelievable. Um, you know, I, at this point, I feel, and this is just me speaking, this is not uh, as a representation of, of Jewish Voice for Peace, but, um, you know, I feel that the Democrats are only giving us someone to vote against and not giving us anything to vote for at this point. Um, and I really don't know what the strategy is, but 
as far as I'm concerned, if Joe Biden does lose the election, he has himself to blame and the Democrats have themselves to blame and not not the, not the voting public who is just cannot bring cannot bring itself to vote for someone who is co-signing the the wholesale slaughter of children. Now, I understand that a number of the various groups who are pushing for a ceasefire are now holding weekly events throughout the Capitol District. What are some of those main events that are taking place on a regular basis? Yep. So we are holding, you know, large scale events. Um, we are doing that in coordination with various global days of actions that are being put out there. But we also wanted to maintain a regular visible presence in the capital region. So for right now, we are kind of joining forces with Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace. They've had a demonstration at Four Corners in Del Mar. That's the intersection of Kenwood and Delaware Avenue for years and years and years. They've been protesting there on Mondays at 4 p.m. So we're kind of joining with them to make sure that we have a visible presence for Palestine at those events. Then on Tuesdays at four o'clock, we are outside of the federal building in Albany. That's right across from the Palace Theater. And in Thursdays, we're at the corner of Balltown Road and Central Avenue in Schenectady, Niskayuna. And that's again, so it's four o'clock, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. Monday is in Del Mar, Tuesday in Albany, and Thursday is in Schenectady. So you mentioned that, you know, these events are taking place part to keep the issue visible, visible locally. How has the local media uh, been covering these ongoing uh, protests about the situation in Gaza? <laughs> well, they've been covering it hardly at all, which is really a disgrace. I mean, I know of one reporter who will not be named who has been trying to cover some of our events, but they cannot get the approval of their supervisors, which is really, um, really distressing and should be uh, alarming to everybody who cares about uh, free press in this country. Um, and also, I will say another another station that will not be named that uh, did give us some coverage when we uh, became the first city in New York State to pass a ceasefire resolution, which is a huge deal. This was back in January 4th when the Albany Common Council passed a ceasefire resolution by an overwhelming majority vote of 10 to 2. Um, and we got a 45-second story on a local radio station. And the majority of those 45 seconds were dedicated to the one person who voted against uh, that ceasefire resolution. There was another abstention. Uh, so the, the coverage has been pretty abysmal. Um, and, and I know that uh, early on the group was pushing Congressman Tonko in particular to be more supportive of a ceasefire resolution, which I think he eventually at least provided some support. How is our congressional delegation both at the local level, but of course with, with Schumer and uh, Gillibrand at the state level? So um, Paul Tonko has been receptive to Jewish Voice for Peace and other Palestinian rights advocacy groups in the past. He has supported um, certain certain bills and resolutions that we've asked him uh, to support in the past that have to do with you know the jailing of Palestinian children, for instance. So um, we approached him very early on, probably mid-October. I sat down and had a meeting with him, part of Jewish Voice for Peace. And then again, I had one in December with him and, and another group. Um, and he has publicly stated that he is in favor of a ceasefire, which we appreciate. We absolutely do. However, he has not taken that extra step 
of of really uh, putting those words into action by signing any kind of legislation or proposing any kind of legislation. So while we appreciate that Paul Tonko is in favor of a ceasefire and, and has put out statements, statements are are important, but action is so, so important and so desperately needed right now. I've been talking with uh, Karen uh, Cormelli, Jewish Voice of Peace, and this has been Mark Dunley for the uh, Hudson Mohawk magazine. You can listen to the full interview uh, with Karen on uh, mediasanctuary.org. Uh, she did want people to know about um, part of a national day of action, uh, hands off uh, Rafa uh, invasion that's been in there. And it's gonna be in Troy at 3rd and Fulton on Saturday, March 2nd at, at 11 a.m. Uh, sponsored by uh, Troy for Black Lives and others. And in terms of Michigan, uh, a pretty strong vote, I guess, about 100,000 votes uh, cast for uh, uncommitted, about 13%. Probably not earth-shaking, but certainly enough to make the uh, Biden administration uh, have to pay a little attention. And for those just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunlight. And I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by sharing our content. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry spoke with Brother X of Albany about Malcolm X's views on foreign affairs, electoral politics, and Malcolm X's assassination. This is part two of Willie Terry's discussion. Well, I know that uh, you, you talked about uh, Malcolm and, and his, his heart to the Middle East. And I know when he went there, he met with some uh, Palestinian leaders that was involved in that struggle. What was his views on the Palestinian struggle? Certainly, that, that fight is still being fought. Whenever you have a Aboriginal people that are born and raised and grew up and created a society and built a nation in a particular area, of the globe and then another group comes in and say we're going to move you out the way and take this over and this is our homeland and and so on and so forth and biblically because all these wars are, are a lot of times religion is used to dictate these wars uh the pope and rome uh in the past would point to a, a place on a globe and say by god's ordainment i bequeath you this land mass here and he points to it and he said, go forth and take that land in the name of God. And the people get there, right? That he said that the land belongs to them. And there's already people there. Where they say, hey, well, the Pope, the most powerful entity in the world, said we can have this land by any means necessary. So those individuals can either, as a phrase that they use nowadays or in the past when it comes to the streets, brother, I'm sure you heard of this, get down or lay down. So it's either that you can become one with us and follow our rules or we can slaughter you. And that's been historically the elites, a modus operandi. I'm going to go to a landmass and I'm going to announce to you, I'm taking this over. This is mine. This is, these are the soldiers and the weaponry that we have to let you know we mean business. Now, 
We have a system of government that we're going to put in place. We're going to change the name of this area. We're going to change the history. The victor goes to spoils. We're going to change the history of Palestinian people, if that's what you call yourselves. Uh, okay, but this is our government. We're going to name it Israel. And, you know, our name are the Jews. And this is what it's going to be. And this is our home base now. And so for years since that time, Minister Farrakhan also has also spoke on this as well on a regular basis to defend the Aboriginal people that that land belongs to. The same fight we have here in America. So as Malcolm was going across the country or go across the world, he realized, wow, as I said earlier, the same fight that we're fighting, that this land mass uh, was ours and we had original people and we had other people who were invaders and marauders and liars and killers came to this land and then took it over and then changed the history and changed the name and changed the language and said, hey, we're the original people here. Uh, obviously, that became a problem. And again, if any information that Malcolm got on, as I said in previous interviews, uh, that was true. The basis had to be true. We couldn't, we couldn't go out and tell falsehoods. If these people were here first and this is their land, then this is their land. And this needs to be spoke upon. These people need to take action. If Malcolm was living today, in your opinion, what do you think he would be saying about the current struggle that's going on in the Middle East in terms of the almost 30,000 people being killed and a large amount being women and children? Well, unfortunately, now, uh, dear brother, with the, it's fortunate and unfortunate, with the increase of surveillance, and what, what I mean by that is everybody has a phone and everybody mm -hmm. has a camera. <laughs> uh -huh. And those who are in power have access to this technology. So we're essentially surveilling ourselves. So unfortunately, every death, every bombing, every weapon, every attack is for us to see. In the past, or in Malcolm's time, if someone was brave enough, because we have footage of World War One and forward footage of World War Two, photos and, and, and the likes, uh, brave individuals who took their cameras or took their their uh, 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 video recorders and went out there and filmed those things. But now the very people that are being bombed, they are recording up until their death. That they're screaming for help as buildings around them fall on top of their heads. You know, so for, for Malcolm to even, uh, and I, I, I'm sure his contemporaries that were around him, his cabinet around him would show him this footage. And, and it would, might definitely kill him because he was such a lover of people to see people, and, and, and uh, also, brother, to put this in proper perspective, in his original speeches, uh, when he was in this, this nation of Islam, talked about the white devil and the white man and so on and so forth. Well, these people who are dying, dying, these people who are Palestinian, are of lighter skin. Very people he saw in power and leadership during the sojourn to Mecca in Africa. And they told him, hey, brother, you know, uh, we appreciate what you do, but according to your dialect and your dialogue, I... I believe his, it, he was a liberator of Liberia, or a president, a revolutionary president of Liberia. Uh, I would be a white man, but I feel and think the same way that you do. And I'm about freedom, and I'm trying to keep this leadership so my people can be free, mm -hmm. right? And they can decide what they want to do with their nation as they see fit. You see, so now you have uh, devastation that is caught on camera regularly. Every death can be recorded, you know? So the pain that would come from him Upon seeing this, mm -hmm. it, it would resort to, hey, we have to take action because action is being taken against us on a regular basis. Like you said, 30,000 people 
dying away. That's an extermination. You know, so he would he would certainly voice to the rest of the globe that this is an extermination. This is the final phase of their plan where they don't want to hear a Palestinian voice because there will be no voices to hear. Mm-hmm. What What do you think <laughs> he would uh, say? Let's, well, I'm going to get into the electoral politics, but I just want to give you a little bit about what Joe Biden doing. The, mm-hmm. the U.N., the U.S. just vetoed a resolution at the U.N. to calling for a ceasefire in Palestine. And the face out front is a black lady who's the uh, uh, delegate, the, the chief delegate at the U.N. for the U.S. And also, war question, U.S. was Joe Biden has a person who's head of the army and the military who is black. And we got a vice president who's going around talking tough about, you know, we got to deal with those people over there in terms of eliminating Hamas. So what do you think about that? You know, the black people being, <laughs> and pushing black people to the forefront of his foreign policy. Well, that's an old trick. Um, that is, if, it's, if it doesn't, if it isn't broken, it doesn't need to be fixed. So that's a trick that's been used for very long. Tricky Joe has had this up his sleeves. More and more information is about him comes out, has been coming out uh, during his years in politics, the 70s and the 80s, and how he treated black people specifically. He has a game plan. Every president has a game plan, especially in terms of dealing with black, because the black vote is, is very important. But you, you mentioned the electoral uh, yeah, politics uh, question. He's going to ask, so I'll, I'll leave that alone. I'll wait till then. But um, in regards to the, the faces, well, you know, again, like I said, that's, a, that's an old trick that uh, the outrage that would come from us once we find out the political maneuverings of said individual, right, we would we would uh, castigate them and scorn them based on their maneuvers, but they're puppets, as Michael used to talk about, they're puppets. Right. Mm-hmm. And they don't think to themselves, they're hired to do a job. You know what I'm saying? No one that is black is hired for a highly uh, a sophisticated and important political uh, position if they're going to do something that benefits us. It all benefits those uh, whom are in power. And so um, they actually have to go over the top so that they can prove to those individuals that hired them that they would never overstep their boundaries, Clarence Thomas. And you notice that those individuals live a very long, long life. They, 80s, 90s, uh, to the hundreds, and they keep that position, and and they work they work it effectively for those who um, hired them. Mm-hmm. You see, so all those different uh, uh, things that uh, the non ceasefire, right, and the United States, uh, because you, you're dealing with Israel, you're dealing with that power elite, you're dealing with that power base, right. So everybody's owed to them. They worked feverishly on obtaining the power that we did, uh, that that they did. So think about it, brother. Other ethnic groups. And other uh, uh, specific groups uh, work. They work the nine to five jobs. Uh, there's no real unification uh, in regards to them. There's no real goal collectively and communally. Those who are the power elite in Israel, they call themselves the, those who not will be named. They've become so powerful, you can't even mention their name in any way, shape, form, or fashion, whether it be a superlative or not. And they will come down on you. They work tirelessly day in and day out to acquire that power. Imagine if you did, if you slept four hours. Imagine if you didn't party. Imagine if you just focused on a goal, right? And you had a template and a script 
and a game plan that after a certain amount of time, this is going to be the end game goal. And everybody has to comport to it. Everybody has to oblige to it. And everybody has to uh, focus on said goal. And that's what they've done. That's what they've done. So if they need the United States to come to a resolution that befits them, they will do so. And that was part two of Willie Terry's uh, interview with uh, Brother X uh, about uh, Malcolm X. Uh, certainly there's been a lot of uh, media report recently uh, around his assassination and more information coming out. Uh, there will be a part three, and you can always check out mediasanctuary.org uh, to catch all the uh, episodes from uh, Willie Terry. Oh, just... Actually, right now, delicious aromas are coming from the Sanctuary Kitchen, where Jonathan Segal is preparing food for the pause anniversary on February 29th, 2024. That's on Thursday. So I took out the mic and asked Jonathan about dishes that to cook in the winter, tips on plant-based eating, and his ideas for a sauce workshop. What's cooking on the stove? Uh, spinach, mushrooms, onions, and garlic on this burner. It's gonna get mixed in with the rice and mixed with eggs and cheese and it's gonna become a casserole. Could you please introduce yourself? I'm Jonathan Segal. I'm, uh, I'm a cook here at Kitchen Sanctuary. So Kitchen Sanctuary, you had a workshop to make a coconut curry uh, during our open house. And what does Sanctuary, what does Kitchen Sanctuary look like right now? Uh, right now, I know there'll be some cooking for some concerts, for some films, and certainly for the Freedom Festival. Uh, that there'll be food for all of that. And I'm hoping to have another sauce workshop or two this season but i'm gonna need help well that's a nice teaser if somebody is interested in doing sauces what's the next step when you say you need help what does that mean i mean a lot of people know lots of sauces that i don't i am a lifelong learner of sauces and i'm not creative every day sometimes i come home not feeling creative i want to make some rice some beans, but put a sauce on them that makes me feel like I was creative that day. <laughs> That's an interesting concept because I've definitely come home from work and just felt so tired that I can't even process what's in my fridge. So that's like a way of doing something very basic and having flavor already made. Is that with the concept? Definitely. Uh, when we had the sauce workshop uh, a little while ago in Taba, taught us this coconut curry sauce and some of us who were involved in it got to take some home and I think I ate it on half of what I ate until I finished it. <laughs> so the sauces that you do know, what inspires you to discover it? Is it a cultural connection? Is it a book that you're reading? What are some ways that you're inspired by menus it it can be certain uh certain cuisines it can be people i talk to it can be ingredients and what ingredients are in season then too 
So this is end of February. What are the ingredients that are core to your repertoire these days? Uh, as you can imagine, there's not a lot coming out of gardens right now. Root vegetables, right? Those are kind of the winter thing. Root vegetables are good. And I do, now that you say, I do get reminded of root vegetables that I forget about during the summer, like rutabaga and parsnip. Uh, I love a parsnip. Yeah. And, and it, can, it can feel really, really hearty with the right mix of maybe some onions and garlic and some flavors poured on top of it. I just like to put it in slivers and olive oil and salt and pepper, roast it. I like a little crunch to my parsnip. Oh, yum. Uh, I like to roast it with potatoes and uh, either tofu or some fake meat or, and maybe some sweet potatoes and Brussels sprouts. Mm. So for the workshops, are you looking for partners in creation or are you looking for people to be interested in participating in those workshops? All of the above. And what's the best way to get in touch with you? Info at Media Sanctuary is, is a good way. This is Wednesday. And so what you're cooking right now, this is for tomorrow. Could you talk about what you are creating this food for? Yes, uh, another, another friend of ours who works here at the sanctuary asked, uh, asked if I could make it for this group, Pause. Yes, that was Mark Dunley, right? That was, yes, it was. <laughs> so as a sustainable energy group, was there some inspiration from what the group stands for to making this food? No, it was nothing so creative as that. Uh, I do tend to go for casserole sometimes when it's people I don't know quite as well. It's, it's tended to work well in those, in those situations. Well, if you're talking about green energy, it is green. It has spinach. And, and I am hoping that people who have important business to discuss will be able to have more vegetables during that discussion than they might have had in, uh, in the midst of it. So you mentioned fake meat. Are you only plant-based? And how do you make that work for the array of people that you cook for? You know, for some people, nothing is going to take the place of some good chicken. Uh, or I know people who make goat. And, and uh, you have made goat here. I believe it was for Al-Balali Sudan. Oh, I can't take the credit for that. It was, it was my friends, Leon and Vashti, who do Caribbean cooking. Team effort. Yes, yes. Uh, but for me and a lot of people I know, uh, either they want something that's straight up vegetarian uh, or maybe they're changing to vegetarian and examining it. In which case, I want them to eat something hearty enough that it doesn't make them miss meat the entire time they're eating it. So for somebody who is a meat eater and looking to turn plant-based, what are some ways to make that transition a little bit easier? Potatoes are very good. <laughs> <laughs> eggs, eggs are good. Uh, and vegan is a much larger leap because of that. Uh, but cheese helps if you're going, just going vegetarian. And, and these root vegetables are, are the other thing, because these are the vegetables that can taste pretty hearty if flavored right.
I think there's a misconception that vegetarian food and vegan food doesn't have flavor. And I have gone to places where that example has been true. Mm -hmm. But there are so many amazing, delicious, full of flavor, vegetarian and vegan foods. Is there a certain type of recipe that makes you think of this kind of really flavorful vegan or vegetarian sauce? All Indian food for one for one thing. And I've gone to vegetarian Indian restaurants with a hundred things on the menu and that cover three different areas of India. But that's that's one place. I've had uh I've had Ethiopian food that does the best things with lentils I've ever I've ever had. But when it comes to sauces, uh that's where I like to experiment with hot sauces. And uh See what levels of heat, not to, not the hottest I can make it, but see what kinds of heat and what kind of flavors go with that heat. That would be interesting for people. Oh, so that's a great idea to go into like an Indian or Ethiopian restaurant, look at their spices and mimic that at home in the kitchen. How easy is that to do? It's, it's tricky, but well worth the trying. <laughs> so you spend a lot of time at farmers markets what is happening at farmers markets this time of year end of february heading into march i feel like we're just about to get green things again uh could be soon uh but right now i i've just been keeping my eyes out for the root festivals i haven't had yet this winter and make sure that i don't go a whole year forgetting about rutabaga. You know, I haven't done so much of vegetable preserving and pickling. Is that something that you have ever experimented with? No, but a lot of people in my life are some serious picklers uh, and fermenters. I, I, admire, I admire that skill a great deal. I haven't learned it myself. Well, this smells absolutely delicious. It is going to be feeding people at the PAUSE 10th anniversary event happening on Thursday evening. Mark Dunley did a interview about that to find more information. Jonathan, what would you like to leave our listeners with? Uh, an open invitation to come to Sanctuary and talk about sauce. Thank you so much. All right, and thank you, Sina. So PAWS, which is the people of Albany United for Safe Energy, the 350.org affiliate in the Capital District, will have its 10th anniversary event on Thursday, uh, February uh, 29th at 6 p.m. at Westminster Presbyterian Church, uh, 85 Chestnut Street, We've heard about the, the great food that Jonathan is preparing. Uh, we also have a little video greeting from Bill McKibben, uh, one of the co-founders of 350. The main thing, we're showing a movie about Greta Thunberg, the Swedish uh, climate activist, and just taking some time to celebrate 10, effort, 10 years of effort to try to deal uh, with climate change and environmental justice here in the Capital District. 
So to end tonight's show. Oh, and if you're really interested in sources, you can contact Jonathan at info at mediasanctuary.org. And next we head to science. People's Science is a series created by former sanctuary intern Aaron Blanding, who interviews researchers and scientists of color about the importance of their work and how systems of inequity have impacted their fields through a lens of social and environmental justice. This is Aaron Blanding for the People's Science Podcast, and I'm here with Sarah Gaither. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So I was wondering if we could start out, if you could discuss your research and what impact you hope it has on your field. Yeah, those are big, bold questions. So for those of you, those of you listening, I'm an assistant professor at Duke in the psychology and neuroscience department. Um, I'm trained as a social psychologist, but also do work with developmental psychology, which means I basically look at how people make good and bad decisions about each other from childhood through adulthood. Um, So I'm really interested in the role that our identities play in shaping not only how good we feel about ourselves, but also how those same identities impact the biases that we put onto other people when we meet them for the first time and when we're trying to socially categorize them when they're walking down the street. Um, So for me, the kind of big picture impact that my work has is we really try in our lab at Duke to focus on underrepresented samples. A lot of psychology research to date really focuses on what we call convenient samples or easy to recruit samples, which are basically your white undergrads who are in classes for class credit. Um, But I'm really interested in how identities from underrepresented groups may function uniquely compared to people from high status backgrounds, such as white individuals in our society. Um, A lot of my work also focuses on multiracial identification and I myself am biracial, even though I look super white, my dad is black, (laughs) my mom is white. It's this whole secret part of my identity, I guess, in some ways. Um, But I really hope that my work gets people to consider their snap judgments that they have when they meet someone new for the first time. All of us have multiple identities, whether they're visible or not. And so I really hope that my work is shifting this consideration that science has and that we as people have in knowing that everyone is a complex person in lots of ways. We're not just that one social category that you might see instantaneously. That's that's really awesome, especially right now when a lot of conversation is being had about what identity means and how that plays into people's lives. So that's really cool to hear about. Yeah, thanks. It keeps me very busy. I I say oftentimes it's good and bad job security, right? There's always (laughs) going to be a new identity issue to sort of think about. So So I was wondering what impact has COVID-19 and the Black Lives Matter movement had or could potentially have on your research? Yeah, it's had a lot of impacts in a lot of different ways. I think first regarding COVID, we do a lot of our research in person. So we bring participants from the communities, kids and families, and they come and I have a team of about 20 undergraduates at Duke who helped me run all of my sessions. And so that entire in-person component of my data collection is completely halted right now. There's a chance we'll be able to recruit participants in person this fall, but I personally am not feeling safe enough for anyone on my lab team um, to be doing that type of work in person. So we're shifting a lot of our research to online data collection now for health and safety reasons. Um, And we've been having a pretty good response actually recruiting kids and families online since lots of kids are home for the summer. So that's one positive spin is running Zoom sessions now with kids (laughs) rather than having to get kids to campus is actually increasing our abilities to recruit in some ways, Um, but very limiting in the types of research questions we can ask since we have to do everything online. 
Regarding Black Lives Matter, the majority of my lab are underrepresented students. I am a psychology professor, as I said before, and a lot of my advisees on campus are also black students. And so I've been spending a lot of time over the past few months trying to make sure students feel supported, making sure that Duke as a university and an entity is responding in positive ways, um, making sure that when we do come back to campus in the fall, um, that we can have a campus environment that is as ready as possible for this changing world. Um, more specifically, as it relates to my research though, we're finding that with the increases in protesting, um, this is now the largest movement in US history. There are millions of people marching still every single weekend across the country, across all different racial and ethnic backgrounds. But at the same time, we're finding some people are now so over-concerned about saying the wrong thing about race that we're seeing that in some of our online data collection too. Um, so we just recruited 150 white participants for a study online and I would say a good 25% of them all basically called me racist or said the study was about them being racist, which is a much higher frequency than I normally see uh, in the work that we do. And so I do think race being this very salient factor right now um, is shifting, I think, in particular, white people's racial and ethnic responses and identity, which we're trying to figure out how to account for in our work. Gotcha. I'm really glad you're still able to collect data, even if it looks a little different. Yeah, we'll, um, see. we'll see how it goes. And so it's important to acknowledge that we're living through a pretty, a very sad time with everything happening. But I think it's important to look for anything that can keep us moving forward and um, encouraged. And so I'm wondering what excites you most about what's happening today? I think, you know, COVID is horrible and it has killed so many people and disproportionately yeah. members of Black and Latino communities. But I think the one positive lining to COVID is because so many people are stuck at home, that's what has helped Black Lives Matter actually be the movement that it is. Um, more people have free time. They're not at work. They want to be taking their kids to protest now. That's also exposing those kids, which are future generations, right, to why it is we need to be fighting systemic racism in our country, why it is black lives really do truly matter, and why it is so many people are angry and fed up with the fact that we've been dealing with this for 400 years. So I think for me, that's one positive thing is we're seeing groups of people for the first time, I think, really bond together in ways. And as a social psychologist who's really interested in how contact with people who are different kind of changes our attitudes, I think mm -hmm. seeing so many different types of people all finally working together to help dismantle racism in our society has to be leading to some form of real change in comparison to uh, previous attempts. Um, we're seeing responses from the NFL that we've never seen before. We're seeing university responses for how they want to be teaching students going forward. These are all reactions that we haven't seen in previous forms of Black Lives Matter protests. And so I'm just excited that I think maybe people are finally starting to wake up. Yeah, it's really, it's exciting. I'm only 19, but I've never seen anything like it. It's really and great. I'm older than you and I haven't seen anything like it either. <laughs> gotcha. We're seeing sort of the first steps in kind of awareness for a lot of people happening right now. And I'm wondering more of like a, a structural thing. What do you think is the first step in making your field more welcoming to people of color? That's a big question. I think the first step is really just acknowledging if you even have any within your organization, within your department. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I think there's a lot of individuals across academia, across higher ed, who take what we call a colorblind approach. So they don't see race, they don't see ethnicity. But mm-hmm. without acknowledging if you have that diversity or not present where you are, you can't make any long-term change, right? So I think really the first step is, is judging yourself, right? Judging your own environment. Who's there and who's not there? And other people who are there, who has a seat at the table, right? Or who's in the room, if you mm-hmm. want to make a Hamilton reference, right? Um, who has the, the power to actually be shifting these discussions? Um, and I think the other thing we really need to be highlighting is where allies are going to be within these um, different departments and across the field of psychology. Um, not every department is going to be welcoming, but there are other people out there, right? So trying to build up networks, support systems to help people of color actually navigate those spaces, I think is absolutely key going forward. Awesome. Okay. So you mentioned that you work with undergrads in your lab, and I'm wondering if you could give like one piece of advice to young people of color navigating the field that you work in. What, what could you say? I think one thing I would say, particularly for any people of color in psychology and neuroscience departments that identify as STEM fields, so at Duke it does count as a STEM major, is first you belong in those majors. I think there's a lot of pushback, particularly within neuroscience um, disciplines, that perhaps you don't see a lot of professors or research that looks like you, but you do 100% belong in psychology and neuroscience. Your ideas are valid, your ideas are worthy to be heard in the classroom. And I would encourage all young generation members, I guess, to really speak up and think critically when they're reading those psychology textbooks and their classes on who is actually represented in the work that you're reading and who isn't represented. It's not to say that previous work is wrong, but if an entire field of psychology is based on studying white participants, then perhaps this is your chance as a rising person in the field to shift that angle, right? To shift that dialogue and discussion to make it more representative of people who look like you and that people who have been overlooked um, historically in psychology as a discipline. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Awesome. So this has been Aaron Blanding and I talked with Sarah Gaither and I'm signing out for People Science. And that was one of the uh, segments from our archives to finish up the show. And that is our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. I'm Mark Dunley. I want to thank Joan Eason for being an engineer, as well as all the other volunteers, Willie Terry, Ellie Irons, and Jonathan Siegel for his volunteer work at Kitchen Sanctuary. And thanks to you, our listeners, for making this all worthwhile. Thank you.